0: So how did we get here? How did I get here? I always like to give you a little bit about my testimony because yes, they affectionately call me Dr. Dirt. So how did that happen? And I like to share my testimony because that is what God has, that's how God transformed my life. Before God, my family history, my family trajectory was death by alcoholism, several uh, kids out of wedlock and just, a faith that was either non-existent or dead. But God got a hold of my family's life right around the time I was five years old. My mom was anorexic. And when she was, uh, the day before I was born, she weighed 72 pounds. After I was born, she weighed 67 pounds. Had to live with my grandparents for a while because they thought that she was going to kill me um, spent a lot of time growing up with grandma and grandpa because of that. But it was in that moment of anorexia, my dad having a nominal faith that had been kind of burned by the church, but also just, uh, he would rather be playing basketball and prior to my mom doing things with other girls other than my mom. And in this mix, my aunt locked my mom out of the car on I-5 just outside of Seattle, Washington and said, get right with Jesus or I'm not letting you back in this car. My dad, who kind of was a Heinz 57 of faith and converted to Catholicism to marry my mom, was surrounded by individuals that he were all of his friends and he just, my dad would have a party at his house on Friday on Saturday night and he would have the party, his friends would leave and then they would come back and there just was this, nothing was real. There was no authentic and the people of faith that he had ran into weren't real. But the church knew that he was a star athlete in high school and a couple of Christian guys said, why don't you come play church basketball for us, Marv? And my dad goes, okay. What does that mean? Play church basketball every Friday night, do what you love, but you got to go to church at least once a month. He'd get fouled on the basketball court and guys would drop words that you don't say in church. But for the first time in his life, he found men who would say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That's not Christ-like. And every Friday night after games, they would invite our family to Big Scoop ice cream. And he was surrounded with people of authentic faith. Anorexia, people working in my mom's life, getting to play church basketball. And then there was a miraculous move of God that took place in Bellingham, Washington in 1990 or 1980. It went for nine weeks in a row. One night after another for nine weeks and it just never stopped. People from faith, from no faith, from every faith were coming and God was touching. The very last night of the, the very first night of the crusade, my uncle, who was an acute alcoholic, had bricks of marijuana in the attic before it was ever legal in any state, especially Washington, was famous for blacking out, stealing dumb trucks and driving them through restaurants. The first night of the crusade, he went forward, he accepted Christ and God delivered him from drugs and alcohol overnight. The last night of the crusade, give or take, I may be a little evangelistically speaking, but right towards the very, very end, my dad saw enough change in my uncle playing with this church basketball. My mom had just then just barely given her life to Christ as her Lord and Savior. We went to the crusade on that last couple nights. And at the age of five, I gave my life to Christ. And that changed the trajectory of everything. We had this journey of faith where we would go to the Catholic church on Sunday morning and I would learn about respect and tradition. That's why I love the Lenten season. And then my neighbors invited me to Baptist Awana and I learned how to recite scripture and memorize it. Second 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself an approved workman who is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's still stuck in my head. And then my high functioning alcoholic grandfather went to an Assemblies of God church. And so we would sneak into there on Sunday night because that's where my aunt had gone when she locked my mom out on the freeway that changed the entire trajectory of my family's life. As we grew and we were discipled and as we were taking in all these things of who Jesus was and God put on my heart to become a missionary. And if you want to be a missionary, especially in the denomination at the time that I was in, you had to go to Bible college, you had to pastor and then you could go. So I went to Bible college. I got a missions degree and then I found my amazing wife. Her her name is Mary. And, uh, just as we were getting ready to apply to be missionaries in Africa, God said, I want you to get your PhD. My goal in Bible college was to find a bride, get involved in ministry. My GPA hovered right around here. (laughs) Getting a PhD? No. So through a series of open and closed doors, roadblocks, miracles, 17 years of pastoral ministry as an Assemblies of God minister at Presbyterian churches, community churches, AG churches. I'm a, I'm a little like a little bit of everything. And all of those things led to way too many degrees. For some would say their own good, but mine, all of these different degrees led me to a spot where I have a PhD in soils, but I also have a degree in church ministries. And 11 and a half years ago, I had the opportunity to come to Convoy of Hope and design and architect their agriculture program. That's part of my testimony, but it all started with genuine people ministering to my mom and my dad and a dramatic encounter with the living God who didn't care what our background was. He just wanted to transform a family. And it's the same thing. So I always put these up on the note. You've already read through them. Um, it's important. Generally, if I'm speaking, especially to science off, you know, science groups and things like that, where I say, hey, here's my bias. Do you need to know that I don't think that agriculture and Monsanto are the great Satan? And I just kind of walk things through all of these different pieces. I've been married for 25 years. Um, we have, we call ourselves a circus. We have six kids, technically. We've got three bios, three fosters. And in the end... I'm an individual who was changed by God because of his graciousness, his unmerited favor. And I think soil is awesome. But that's who I am. And that's who my testimony is. And it's that testimony in that story that even how Convoy came into existence. When you think about our, our story of Convoy, it was founded by a guy named Hal Donaldson. He's still with us. He still has his, I walked by his office the other day and his story, his testimony, his father and mom were pastors. They were getting ready to go to a business meeting. They were hit by a drunk driver. Dad was killed instantly and mom was critically injured. The police stood at the door of their home and said, who will take them? And it was dead silent. And there was four siblings. And finally, an individual, a family in the church said, we'll take them. They already had a family of five in a single wide trailer. And they took them in for over a year. All through that process of Hal growing up with his siblings, he was what he would say, I grew up poor. I grew up on the generosity of others. I grew up on food stamps. People in the church saying, I'll take you to go buy new shoes. And Hal will say that in, in his piece that, When you grow up poor, your goal is to never be poor again. And so Hal went through and he started to, he got a journalism degree. He's an amazing writer. He's authored like 30 some books. He's shadow authored several. Um, There's pictures of him with Dan Rather and other big icons of the day. And he had the opportunity to interview Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa said, young man, what are you doing for the poor? His response, you don't lie not much. She said, everybody can do something. He went back home to California at the time. He got some friends together. They loaded groceries in the back of a pickup truck and they started distributing food. And that was the birth of Convoy of Hope to a place now where located in Springfield, Missouri, we have a fleet of trucks that came from a crashed car. Last year alone, Over $2 billion of product went through our warehouse and went to people all around the world, from Syria to Turkey to rural communities in the U.S. We've been able to, over Convoy's history, we just passed the 200 million person mark of people that have been connected and been connected with the love of Christ as goods and services have been given in his name. That's the founder's testimony. And when we start to look at the convoy piece and what that looks like, convoy, as you know about disaster response, we work in rural communities, but we also do work around the world in what we call global program, where we go into a community and we're working with the community, looking at their assets, what are their strengths and working with the community leaders, all connected with the local church to be able to build that community up so that they can ultimately move from poverty to a thriving community that breaks the cycle of poverty physically and spiritually. And that's the side that I get to be a part of. This last year, we had, and you can't quote this, I know it's live streamed, but uh, if it comes back to haunt me, I'll get in trouble, that's okay. But when the annual numbers get, when they come out into publication, over 538,000 kids were fed throughout the school year, in over 37 countries worldwide. We were able able to empower and work with over 30,000 women and girls in our women's empowerment and girls empowerment programs. We were able to train and resource another 24, roughly 24,000 farmers in those countries. That's an amazing footprint from an individual who had his heart of compassion broken and then restored. When you think about the different programs, children's feeding, we're making sure that everybody is healthy. It isn't just food off the back of the truck. We've got nutritionists, we've got doctors, we've got people on staff that make sure that you have clean water, that it's the right nutrient. We've even changed diets in different communities based off of the genetics and what it is that they can, what it is they should eat, what they shouldn't eat. We look at all of those different pieces. We make sure that there's clean and safe water that you're washing hands because you don't eat where you poop, you don't poop where you eat. Rule number one. And unfortunately, a lot of communities we work in That's rule number one. And then within that program, then we start to be able to work with girls and women on micro business for our women. We choose women that have made less than $2 a day and we start teaching profit loss, um, profit loss, marketing, and try to find that niche so that they become entrepreneurial giants in their community. And we have got women who were making less than $2 a day that are making thirty dollars to $40,000 US. And when you walk into their business, they open up their checkbook. See what I spent last month? And they're not ashamed at anything, whether they bought hair dye, whether they bought this. But a lot of times it's, nobody's paying my school fees for my kids. No one's paying the school fees for their uniforms. My kid is going to college. We're doing it. And we're empowering those women. We also then work with the girls to make sure that in a lot of the communities, they don't come, most women don't have that worth. They don't come that with that worth instinctively. And so you matter, you, value, you are valued by God. Every human is valued by God, even you as a woman, and even more so. And we just walk through that process because in a lot of places, the cows are more, worth more than the women. And we build them up so that they too then have that preventative piece. So you don't have young married, young single moms that are inside that program we work with boys as well to make sure that boys are passing on, hey, this is how you respect a woman. This is the value that Christ puts on all life. And then lastly, when all those things go together, we then build in agriculture. Because if you wanna survive, you need food. And if you can go into a community and we talk about this idea of food security, what is keeping food from being on your table today, tomorrow? and for years to come. An agricultural piece is that. How do you produce it? What are the missing links? And we look at it from a aspect of family, community, and the region. So as a family, what is it that's keeping food from your table? Or is it the right food? And then we start to go, okay, great. We need to we need to find out where you're at and we need to fill those gaps. And it can be everything from diet diversity. You are eating only corn or you're eating only rice. Well, we need to add diet diversity to that mix. And then when we, and we always are teaching in schools. We've got basically four H's or many FAAs um, in most of the countries that we work in to be able to install that agricultural education at the base level Then we start to look at the community. What is it that you're growing? Can we help you with your production? Can we help you increase your yields? What do we need to be able to do from an organics methodology? What can we do from a synthetic methodology? How can we bring all these pieces together? Oh, you've produced all kinds of food, but yet you're losing it all in the field because there's no market. There's no transportation. There's no storage. And you've got post-harvest loss. We work with all of those pieces to be able to build our communities up. And we do that with coaching calls, mentoring calls, and local staff and consultants in every one of those countries. Because those country agronomists, those country specialists, they know that soil, they know that pest, they know that disease. And since we started agriculture um, 11 and a half years ago, this last month, we were able to surpass over 80,000 farmers have been trained in resource, in best practices, and elevated their education no- knowledge all around the world we're noticing that around the world, even in the United States, as COVID has really created this, this break in the supply chain and that food and food security is on everyone's mind around the world, but also even here in the United States. There is a new urgency on this idea of supplemental food and groceries and around the world, the emerging farmer or that first generation farmer or in the United States where my grandpa isn't around anymore. And that's how I used to go and either go to his garden and mooch his garden, or I'd get advice from him. There's this this gap in really the extension of taking the best science to the people and the people back to the science to shape it. So Convoy, our goal is to train 100,000 farmers every year by 2030 around the world, here in the United States, North America, and globally. And so with that, Knowing that there is this gap and we are finding this gap, whether we're talking to K-State, Mizzou, Washington State, Oregon State, um, University of Arkansas. They're all saying that there is this lack of knowledge and there's this lack of resources for that fourth to eighth grade level. That emerging farmer, that mom and pop that goes kind of above master gardeners, but yet is below the extension million dollar um, combine extension journals that are coming out. So Convoy of Hope sees this need and what we've done is we have launched the Center for Agriculture and Food Security in Springfield where our goal is to be that resourcing arm for people all around the world. Using our relationships with universities, with farmers around the world, we on-site in Springfield where our new warehouse is at, being able to mimic and replicate soils and agricultural practices where we can train, demonstrate on-site and then be able to broadcast with our communication specialist virtually or take our resources and be able to translate them in French, Swahili, Spanish and make them available to anyone at any time. Because if we follow the book of Revelation, depending on where you are on the spectrum, things when it comes to food generally don't get better until it gets worse. And we wanna be that resource, especially for the church community. So on site, our goal is to be able to have row crops, specialty crops, greenhouses, so we can replicate, mimic, advocate for agriculture, an ag mechanics lab. Because one of the things is, I don't have to teach 12 people how to weld. But around the world, ag mechanics, plumbing, hydraulics, as you're taking somebody from a hand tool to the million dollar combine, there's an awful lot of steps in along the way. And that knowledge base isn't there. So be able to demonstrate how to weld, how to fix a hydraulic pump, how to be able to do those things on site and then translate it and go around the world. And then ultimately, we wanna be able to, to be at a spot where we're not just transferring the information, but we wanna be pushing the information. We wanna be able to say, yes, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe that the Holy Spirit is real. We believe that the Holy Spirit guides us and uses us. And so we wanna be able to create 2029, 20, 2020, 30, filling the gaps that the universities don't have, but also set up a program where you take the best scientific minds who love Jesus with all their heart and bring them into your lab, have them kneel every morning and say, and where it says over the door, okay, God, show me the secrets of the peanut. Because George Washington Carver would go into his room in his lab and he'd say, God, show me the secrets of the universe. And he went, uh, no, that's too big for you. And he finally went down, he goes, God, fine, great. Show me the secrets of the peanut. And God said, there you go. Go into your lab, break it into sugars, carbohydrates, pressure, amino acids. George Washington Carver said in his journals that when he came out of the lab, he just sat there and he did exactly what God did. He came out with over 122 uses for the peanut and peanut butter wasn't one of them. He was asked to testify in front of Congress the next week. And they gave him 30 minutes. He took 60 and they invited him back the next day because he just said, God, show me. And that's what the center of ag and convoy wants to be able to go as we train and resource people around the world. As we talk about not wanting to just be transfers of the science, we wanna push the science. We just got this article uh, published in Crop Science. Top tier journal, but in the end, in Tanzania and East Africa, there's a bean called lab lab. They plant it with corn. They plant the corn and when corn dies off, they plant the lab lab. Traditionally, it says that you can't plant them together because they'll both suffer. A graduate student at Missouri State in conjunction with some others in Convoy proved over three years of research that if you plant between day seven and day 14, it actually helps both of them, you don't get any loss. It will transform and change the Maasai way of farming and intercropping. It'll save time, it'll save money, and it'll save water. And we're pushing the science forward. And when you think about just the basic resources, this will be going to press on Monday. But if you ever wanna know what are the seven essential nutrients, how to test your soil, what are the fertilizer components, how do you calculate them? At fourth to eighth grade level, we'll have it up on the web by the end of next week. All of that, how does that all fit together? Well, it fits together in the story of Nepal. In 2015, there was a horrific earthquake in Nepal. Everybody was coming into the area. We found this community called Kimtung. All the other NGOs had forgotten about it. We went into the community and it was obvious that that it was a hopeless community and the, the, the hopelessness was there long before the earthquake. It can be summed up like this. I was sitting with Pastor Samuel and um, about a year and a half after the earthquake, and we're watching and we're going into this other community we wanted to work with. And we're watching 12 to 14 year old boys play soccer. And he said, Jason, two years, every one of these kids is gone. I go, what do you mean? No men stay, none of the boys stay. And then I started to look around, and there was. There was no boys over the age of 14 in these communities. I'm like, "Where do they go? Dubai, Kathmandu, Europe, United Arab Emirates, everywhere they can go to do construction. And when you pull into when you go to the airport in Kathmandu, they're lined up. They've all got folders and they're all uniform, they've got all of their forms together, and they walk up in a single file line and they go and they make $200 a month in some other country and they ship it back. He goes, these communities are dead and these boys won't won't remain. That was the story of Kim Tung. We went in after the earthquake, started to work from a disaster response piece and our disaster response team was able to note it, was starting to notice that the kids were malnutrition. They had orange hair, all those things that would be a a sign that the kids aren't getting the nutrition that they needed. But yet they're surrounded by terraced fields that have been grown with rice and corn for 10,000 years. But they were still malnutritioned. So they started a children's feeding program. And then as our nutritionists started to make the observations and see what what the missing pizzas are, it was all about diet diversity. Individuals in Kimtung didn't know they could grow anything but rice and corn. So working through agricultural extension, we started to work with their women and we started a women's empowerment program with the school feeding program. And we started to introduce small space gardens. In a community that had been doing terrace agriculture for 10,000 years, for the first time in their life, a garden showed up. And it went from one garden to 450 gardens. And then from there, we started to look at the other components of the agricultural sector. You're working with the moms in the school and looking at diet and diet diversity. Then we started to go, you can grow this cash crop. You can grow this cash crop. We noticed that there's little tiny Nepali goats running everywhere. But yet if they come, if we brought a goat in from Kathmandu that was this big, they'd have more meat. So we introduced genetic lines that had produced more, be- more meat. We then started to, as they would say, we, we opened their eyes. And we would take them to farm tours and we would take them to tea plantations. We would take them to go see cardamom, and we would take them to see tomatoes and high tunnel production. In the end, it was such a successful program and that we have what we say, we have completely exited Nepal. We have at the village of of Kimtung because it is completely sustainable. It has... They own their school. They own all of the different pieces. Their agriculture has increased. And we exited that program in 2020. The government, who does very tight audits in Nepal, caught up two months ago. And they did their final review seven years later. There are seven years now that the project had been in existence and two years after it had exited, and they said, we need somebody from Springfield to come and visit. So two and a half weeks ago, I sat once again in the community of Kim Tung. As I'm going into Kim Tung, it took me four hours to get there. Last time, it took me eight. And a hotel stay. As I'm meeting with the government officials over Kim Tung Tea, in a community that you couldn't find a place to have tea. Now I've got Kim Tung tea. And I'm asking, what? why am I here? Well, we wanted you to see a community that was dead is now thriving. As I'm sipping Kim Tung tea, I'm like, well, what exactly does that mean? And they go, well, there's lots of different things, but besides the tea you're drinking, Just last year in this small community, we sold over $400,000 US worth of tomatoes in one season. Where there was one road, now there's several, and most of the roads have been put in by the farmers. When the wholesalers come to the wholesale market, when our farmers come to town and bring it into the, come to market, all the wholesalers stop, because our tomatoes and our peppers get triple the value anywhere else in the country. I went, wow, that's pretty cool. (laughs) And then I said, but what else? He said, well, where there was in the beginning, everywhere you went in Tung, you stumbled over the drunk men. Now, there is no drunk men. And even the Buddhists are no longer using alcohol inside their traditional ceremonies. And we've gone the way of the Christian. This is coming from a Buddhist government official. And when then I said to the local pastor who was on the city council, I said, what has this meant for you? A non-existent church and he goes, Well, we just finished our 450 seat sanctuary debt free. And people are coming to know the faith of Jesus daily. That is the power of agriculture. That is the power of Jesus. And that is the power of compassion. The last photo is, is three boys. Those three gentlemen, on the, one in the, the two here, one in the black, one in the white, Skylar and Gunger, they were in line at the airport in Kathmandu, ready to give their folder and go to, Dubai, um, go to Dubai. They got ripped off. When they found out that they had been ripped off, they didn't know what to do, but they heard that something was happening in the community of Kimtung. So they went to Kimtung and they got involved in our agriculture program They're wearing nicer North Face jackets than I own. They've got a nicer phone that I own. They're 26 and 27. They own motorcycles. They have put in several of the road. Their farm gate prices are in the 30 to 70,000 US dollar off of the multiple crops that they're growing. And they're planning a vacation to Thailand so they can finally get a stab in their passport. In the next community over, I was sitting and having warm buffalo milk with mungus. And I said, what is this program meant to you? With tears in his eyes, he said, I didn't have to go to Dubai this year. For the first time in my life, I didn't go to the airport and wonder if I'll ever see my wife and kids again. It has saved my family's life forever. Forever. And as the church thrives, as men like these lives are changed, their families are changed, generations have changed and it all is surrounded with the compassion of Christ. I give pastor even less than a minute this time. My prayer for you, and this is what I leave you with. as you see some of these amazing things that Convoy's done. And yes, I'd love to be able to brag on it because it's God. At the same time, each one of you, there is something in your life. There is something that you have of extreme value that God wants. Whether it's here in the church, whether it's in the community, he wants it, the world needs it the world needs authentic individuals of faith who are willing to play basketball, foul on the field, on the court, maybe say something they're not supposed to, but they apologize and they're authentic and that's what the world needs. And it all starts with a piece of compassion and kindness. But this idea of compassion in the New Testament and in Greek literature is that it comes from the bowels and that it's moving. It makes you want to do something. And in the Greek literature, compassion is always a noun, except for in the Bible where it's always a verb. Whatever it is that God is asking you to do, do the thing in front of you. Doing compassionate things is messy. I am leaving right after service because I've got a guardian in light. I'm coming to my house to basically take and do the white glove test to see whether or not I still get to keep foster kids because it's all a mess compassion is messy. But when we step out and do what God has asked us to do, do the thing that is in front of us, he can take a car that was wrecked and turn it into a community that was transformed. And what he's done in the hearts and the families of Kim Tung, he can do in your family, he can continue to do in your community because that's what he wants. When you leave here today, say, God, what is it that you want me to do? How can I be your hands and feet today and do the next thing that's in front of me? Because when the church does that, that's when the gospel is so irresistible that every community is changed forever to a point where even the Buddhist monks don't drink.